Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, December 13th, 2011, and our special guest is David Maxfield. David, thanks for being here. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure. Okay to call you David? Yes, it is. That's great. Not your highness, Mr. Maxfield, Dr. <laughs> Maxfield. I've, I've been called worse. <laughs> Funny. Future of Education is sponsored by the Web 2.0 Labs project. It's web20labs.com and Blackboard Collaborate. We provide this terrific environment. Coming up on the Future of Education tomorrow night is the EduBlog Award Show. I'm co-hosting that again this year. It starts a little bit earlier. It starts at um, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time or 4 p.m. Uh, Pacific. Uh, there will be a link up on the edublogawards.com site. I think it may be up already. Then uh, on a Thursday night, a Blue Valley School CAPS program is coming on, a panel of students, teachers, and business leaders who will work together and have high school students uh, actually working on projects and businesses in the community. Fascinating program. Then we take our holiday break. Coming back, Scott McLeod comes on the show, Ian Jukes, Mitch Pearl's theme to talk about the family and education. Uh, again, I think that's going to be a terrific show. Sean Nussbaum Beach on her new book, Henry Iring on the Innovative University. Lots more of their cable green should be a lot of fun. They're all gonna they're all gonna be fun. Now, new on this list is Lorette Lynn, the unplugged mom who does a podcast show on uh, homeschooling and unschooling. It should be a lot of fun to talk to her. If you've missed any of the show, I think there are over 200 of them up there. These are some of them. Uh, they are all recorded. They're in full illuminated versions and in MP3 files. And there is a link to the podcast there if you want to subscribe. Hopefully, there's something there of interest to you. Lots of fun. So this is where we give you a chance to let us know where you're participating from. I'm going to give you whiteboard privileges. So now to the left of the map, you should see some icons. You're looking for the second one down, which is the star. Double click on that and then click on the map. Then feel free to put a shout out in the chat. Hello, Australia, Phoenix, San Diego. Wherever you're listening from, sure glad to have you here. I'm in New York tonight, uh, and surprisingly much warmer than Park City, Utah. David, what's it like? Where are you? Right <laughs> that doesn't now? take much. I'm in Park City, Utah. Right. <laughs> oh, you are. <laughs> I am. So, uh, so I'm actually living in Park City this year, and uh, we got up the other morning, and it was minus four degrees, and uh, quite. Quite uh, cold. I, I remember that in Park City. Yeah, wow. Kimball Junction area. Oh, how fun! Well, that's another good connection for us. Well, wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we thank you so much for doing so and for being here. And so, I have put in the file transfer uh, capability of this program, a document, uh, that David is, uh, an article that David has written, and it should have downloaded for you. Uh, if you didn't get it, I'm going to now uh, push it out again. And if you've already transferred it or copied it down, you do not you just say no, don't accept it again, but I'll make sure that if you didn't get it, you have a second chance here. And, and if somebody has missed it again, please let me know and we'll do that one more time. So David, I actually came to a Vital Smarts training 
a couple of months ago as part of um, some work with Choice Humanitarian. And uh, it was my real first exposure to the work that you've done. And I have to say, I was pretty captivated um, and, and very interested in what you're doing. Um, could I get you to describe this article and, and maybe kind of tell that first story of the firefighter and give, me a, give us a sense of sure. what you're communicating here? Yeah, the, the metaphor that you're describing in the beginning happened 50 years ago. There were smoke jumpers fighting a forest fire. So they're jumping out of an airplane. They're landing in the middle of this horrible forest fire. And within minutes, the fire exploded out of control. It raced toward them at, they later calculated, 660 feet per minute. Right, there are 15 of these firefighters. They're here. The temptation is to run for the nearest hill. But, of course, fire can run uphill faster than any human being can. And one of the leaders said, no, run toward the fire. He lit the, the, the ground right in front of him, burned it out to, to black, and lay on the ground and covered himself with his, with his cape. He ran toward the fire instead of away from it. He tried to get his fellows to do the same. They didn't. They ran to the hill and were consumed by the fire. He was the only one who survived. And the message I want to take from that is that sometimes the only way to survive is to run toward the fire instead of away from it. And I think that's what teachers can do to prevent the burnout that sometimes happens. So it, um, what's intriguing to me about this is that I mean, the story is, is captivating and it's, it's memorable. Um, it, you know, it's, uh, it, it also sort of indicates the degree to which the activity that you know you're going to ask the teachers to do here is a little bit counterintuitive or maybe scary, yep. right? But it comes from uh, research. This isn't just something you've kind of spun out of uh, the air. I mean, you, you worked very hard to find out what these five crucial conversations were. And, and that seems to be an important thread in all of the work that you do at Battle Smarts, right? Mm -hmm. There has to be um, a sort of almost double-blind study kind of quality of understanding. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're a research-based organization. Um, Carrie Patterson and I met when we were first-year doctoral students at Stanford. I was getting my Ph.D. in psychology. He was getting his Ph.D. in organizational behavior, and we wanted to study leadership. This was at a time when a lot of leadership theory was basically platitudes, but there was this newfangled thing out. This was the late 1970s called the videotape recorder, <laughs> and we, we got our one of those things. And what we tried to do with it was take these sort of vague platitudes like establish a good relationship and try to turn it into the level of scripts, like what would an actor say? How would you film that? And ever since then, we've been trying to do research on, you know, what are, how do you do this? What are the tools that you can actually use rather than just vague aphorisms? So this reminded me a lot of, we're hearing a lot about Finland right now, especially in our educational circles. Um, and one of the things that they do in Finland uh, quite well is that they have a mentoring program uh, for those who are becoming teachers, uh, among many other established practices. But the teachers who, those who are becoming teachers spend a lot of time in the classroom with other teachers who are modeling behavior. Mm -hmm. Am I right in thinking that, you know, a large part of this came from Albert Bandura and sort of this uh, social learning theory? Yes. Albert was my advisor and dear friend when I was at Stanford. We we try to take each other out to lunch uh, three or four times a year. 
Albert just retired last year. He's 86 now, and he's caring for his wife who's ill. And so we're trying to take him to lunch over the Christmas season. Yeah, he's one of my most important mentors. So what did he do that was so important here in terms of understanding how behavior would change? Yeah, well, I love the quote he has on his wall. It's from Yogi Berra. It says, sometimes you can observe a lot by just watching. <laughs> he, he'll say that what he did was he took common sense and tried to validate it with research. And it turns out that common sense is very uncommon <laughs> and that most of us, you know, while we sort of realize what we should do, we don't always do it. Um, and and sometimes, for example, the, the example you gave from Finland, sometimes we, we're good at putting down explicitly what we think a teacher needs to know, but there's so many implicit skills that are hard to communicate but easy to demonstrate uh, that obviously you learn a heck of a lot by watching and, and working with, with a skilled ally. But if I'm right in remembering the one story, it was about the kids and violence and, and sort of modeling sure. behavior they'd seen. And didn't he sort of show that contrary to public opinion at the time, that modeling was a much significantly more um, yeah. impactful? He did. That was a series of studies, the Bobo doll studies. <laughs> where it, it's kind of bizarre, but, the, but the, the same researcher who came up with the term trial and error learning, who worked mostly with rats back in the early 1900s, proved definitively that you can't learn through observation. And his mistake was his, his animals were tomcats. And it turns out you put one tomcat next to another, and the one tomcat is in a puzzle cage learning how to escape. The first tomcat is, is learning to how to escape. The second tomcat is lying on the ground curled up asleep. So he says, well, learning doesn't happen, but by the way, the cat seemed to sleep. So in the second round of the study, he held the cat and pointed its face at the other cat, and still the cat didn't learn, and concluded that learning doesn't happen through observation. Now, that's as stupid as you can get, right? So Bandura, back in the late 1950s, said, let's show just how, bad, how stupid that is. And so he showed kids uh, playing with a Bobo doll, doing novel violence, like picking up a hammer and beating the Bobo doll with it, or picking the Bobo doll up, turning it upside down, and smashing her down on the ground. And kids who had watched that modeled it. They mimicked it. I mean, no big surprise, right? Now, he also showed that it wasn't just um, monkey see, monkey do. The kids only mimicked it and, and, and followed those unique behaviors if they were told that it was okay to. If they were told, um, be nice to the Bobo doll, don't hurt it, then you wouldn't see any of the modeling, right? So he was separating learning from observation, from performance. So there's, there has to be motivation as well as ability. Well, there's so much depth here. Um, if we go back to this idea of the survey that you did and, and looking for those um, crucial conversations, those behaviors uh, that actually would lead toward um, less teacher burnout. Mm -hmm. right? So you identify sort of five crucial conversations. Now, am I using the right wording if I say that those yeah. were positive deviance examples? Um, you look well, for teachers who were... 
Not exactly. I mean, it is. Let me, I'll get to that. But let me share sort of the actual history of how I did this study, because it's way more personal. Um, I was living in a small town in South Dakota at the time, and an incident happened in the town that was sort of shocking. It was a, a school employee uh, abused a, a young girl, a middle school girl. And I had a lot of friends in town who were teachers, and many of them would come to me and said it was an accident waiting to happen. I said, what do you mean? They said, oh, we all knew that man was trouble. He was trouble all the time. And we're like, really? But who did you share that information with? And the answer was nobody. It was a conspiracy of silence. And I was thinking of this as, oh, my gosh, we've got bystander apathy. We've got teachers who don't care enough to deal with a, an, a, a potential abuse situation. But as I talked to them, it quickly became that that was my was my diagnosis was way off track. This wasn't bystander apathy. It was bystander agony. These teachers didn't know how to get a response from the school district, from the school administration. They felt powerless. They felt cynical and they felt emotionally exhausted. And and that was when I thought this would be a great place to do a research study. Um, to see if, if when you turn the corner from being frustrated and, and exhausted to being cynical and exhausted and feeling helpless, that's when it becomes burnout. That's what I wanted to look at. So I wanted to look at, are there crucial conversations that if you fail at them consistently, they spell the difference, they'll, they'll turn you from, from frustrated to burnout? That was sort of how we got started. But these aren't easy conversations to hold. I mean, I'm intrigued that the, yeah. we had a guest on last week who was uh, who had written a, uh, a, a set of very similar kind of questions for <laughs> parents to ask teachers when they were frustrated with what was going on at school. And I said to her kind of candidly, I can imagine about 1% of the parents feeling empowered to ask those questions and then hitting such a roadblock that they would pull their kids out of school. And she said, well, that's exactly what happened. And her next paper was on, uh, you know, how do you deal with being a working parent and a homeschooled child? So uh, <laughs> why don't we sort of start going through these, and you can, and you can yeah. tell me, as we do them, how could a teacher actually do this? What kind of personal empowerment would they need to feel to be involved in these conversations? And I'm going to open yeah. up the first one here. Great. Let me let me step back just a minute and say what we're looking for, we call these crucial conversations. And a crucial conversation is one that has three characteristics. There's a difference of opinion and the stakes are high and emotion gets involved. Those three elements. And the challenge with crucial conversations is that because they are high stakes and emotional, we tend to go to fight or flight. They tend to bring in that fight or flight mechanism. We call it silence or violence, right? You tend to go to silence. You don't speak up out of fear. In fact, if you think back the fight or flight syndrome, you think of the saber-toothed cat appears on the scene. Blood rushes, you know, adrenaline floods your body. Blood rushes to your major muscle groups, right? You're getting ready to either flee or fight. And that happens to a teacher, to a student, to a parent, when you're in one of these emotional, high-stakes situations. We tend to go to fight or flight because we're, we're afraid of what could happen. We feel threatened. And, and these are five conversations where it's very easy to feel threatened. 
And I'll just state what the five are, and then we can go into more detail. The first of them is unsupportive school leaders. So they're, you're, you need help, and you're not getting it. And, and an example from the article that I'll cite is a quote from one of the teachers in the study. One of my assistant principals is very unsupportive. For example, when I send a student to his office due to behavior in class, he sends him back without telling me what action he's taken. The student often escalates again and spends more time in the hallway by this assistant principal's office. When I've discussed this with the assistant principal, he says, you can assume I did the job, right? So where you don't feel that you're getting support. Um, the, and, and would you like to talk about that one in particular? Well, um, if we could pause for just a second. Deborah in the chat asked about, um, she said, institutions do not empower by nature. This is clearly not unique to schools. I mean, in the in the books, portions of the book and the that I read, the books that I read, and uh, the one that I read all the way through, Influencer, uh, it's clear that this happens in industry and in healthcare and in other places. You know, is there a degree to which institutions create an environment which sometimes makes it difficult to speak up? Yeah, absolutely. It it varies a lot from industry to industry and from organization to organization as to how undiscussable things are. I'll give you an example. I'm working with a, a gold mining operation in Ghana where there are, there are uh, local workers, and I'm working with the drivers, and a typical driver there earns about $8,000 a year. His or her boss, an expat from Australia, the U.S., or South Africa, earns 200000 a year. Think of that power differential, how hard it is for a driver to speak up to an expat and say, um, I, we're going to be late to the airport because it's unsafe for me to speed on these roads. Instead of speaking up, the, the overwhelming temptation is to speed up, even though the expat is not asking them to do anything unsafe. It's just that differential is so great that it's disempowering. It seems like this is kind of a part of the human condition that that we that, you know in the face of sort of lots of people doing things that we kind of conform. I mean, are there studies that show you know especially ones where people are hurt on the side of the road and people don't stop? Mm -hmm. Is this just kind mm -hmm. of a part of our nature? Well, it's especially part of our nature when we feel threatened or when we think our goal is at risk. That those are the times when we tend to to go to silence, or we overreact and go to, to sort of, an, an, we'll say go to violence. We don't mean a physical violence necessarily, but we go on a, an inappropriate attack or a rant that doesn't work. It's equally ineffective. So what we're trying to do is give people skills so that they can speak up in these risky situations without putting themselves at risk. Great. Um, and I have a question for you before we go on as well. So you're not a co-author in the conversations books, in the, in the crucial yes. conversation, the crucial confrontations. Um, but it seems as though you were sort of at the beginning of this. Is there history uh -huh. that's worth knowing? <laughs> well, the history is that, that um, we're an overnight success, but it took us 20 years. Um, and the first two companies we started failed. And I stayed with one of the, the companies that failed um, a little too long, I would say, looking back on it, because all of a sudden this book appeared that my, my 
former partners had written, and I got on the phone and said, listen, I can't duplicate this by myself. Can I rejoin the team? And they said, yes, they were very gracious, and, and I've been working with them ever since. How fun. It, uh, I was just so intrigued by the numbers of studies that you cited, especially that related to the work at Stanford. I felt like that had to have been the beginning of the story. Okay, so I'll stop interrupting and we can go to number two here. <laughs> Great. So number two is teachers who are failing in their classroom. Um, we find that, that often the first people to know that a teacher is struggling, is maybe struggling with discipline or maybe struggling with organization or, or struggling with, with presenting material, is not the principal, not the assistant principals, not the parents. It's the teachers. It's the other teachers, their peers. And when they see that, many of them don't feel empowered or don't feel it's appropriate or they're nervous about speaking up and sharing that concern. And so we think they need to do that. And it would be very helpful if they did. Here's an example from our, from our paper again, from the interviews we did. For a year I worked with a teacher who had retired from another state and had taken a position here to pad her retirement. She had no classroom management, rapport with students, or direction with curriculum. It was a pretty bleak picture considering this was the career she had just retired from. I think she wanted the cake without having to do any of the cooking. Right? And, and when teachers know that, teachers are, can hold each other accountable if, if that's the system you can create. So Deborah wanted to know how you do this without getting charged with insubordination. And then Alice sure. mentions that peer mentoring would be so powerful. And it feels to me that that is kind of a part of what you, you recommend, this idea of training and the skills that would be needed to be able to hold these conversations. Yes, so many of, the, of our mission-critical uh, professions in, in this world ought to be team sports rather than individual sports. And I think that, that peer mentor is a very powerful way. But let me talk a little bit about how do you speak up in a way that's not threatening. Because we live in a society where people go to silence or violence, and you've decided to speak up. <laughs> are, are people going to see that as silence, or are they going to see it as violence? Well, they're, they're going to see it as violence, right? So how you speak up is really important. And you need to have a way in the first you know, few words out of your mouth to be able to say in a convincing way, this is not an attack. And here's the a saying I keep in the back of my mind that sort of works for me. So let me try it out with you. The military have a saying that is, always salute the flag before you disagree with your commanding officer. And when you think about it, salute the flag before you disagree has two meanings to it. One meaning is show respect to your commanding officer. Okay? Show that you respect their role, their position, them as an individual. We call that mutual respect. The other aspect of saluting the flag before you disagree is to remind the person that you and they are on the same side. You're, you want what they want, and they want what you want. You're on the same team. You're saluting the same flag. We call that mutual purpose. So when you, when you decide you want to speak up to an uncooperative principal or assistant principal or, or coworker, ask yourself, um, what's the mutual purpose that we share? When I speak up, are they going to see me as attacking? Or can I start by, by, by framing it with our mutual purpose? And how can I do this in a way that is respectful, knowing that they're, they might feel and be especially sensitive to a sense of disrespect? 
So I wonder if some of the success that certain charter schools experience is that they are kind of starting from scratch and there's much less of the maybe sort of embedded culture of compliance that would make conversations difficult. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, I'm currently doing a lot of work with KIPP schools. In fact, I'm, I'm heading to Chicago tomorrow, and I work with them Thursday and Friday. Um, but I don't, I don't have enough experience to know if that's the case. But I think every teacher, every organization, someone noted earlier, organizations don't empower people as a rule. <laughs> and I think that's very true. I think that you have to take it upon yourself to say there are certain conversations that really are crucial that stand in the way of student success, of teacher engagement, of parent engagement. And when I see one of those, I don't want to allow it as an accident waiting to happen. I don't want to be the witness who chooses to ignore it. I'll be the one who speaks up, but I'll speak up in a way that's sensitive, respectful, and loving so that I can have impact. And, and when, in the examples I read from uh, Influencer, uh, when this kind of activity is done on a broad scale with an organization, clearly it's not just the employees who go through training, but there also has to be a fair amount of training of those who are in management to understand how to cultivate this environment, right? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Um, so an, an example would be um, working in a hospital system where hand hygiene is the issue. Um, 100,000 people in the United States die each year from hospital-acquired infections. It's, it's a more common cause of death than traffic accidents. And yet, the simplest way to, to remove, to, to reduce that hospital-acquired infection is to have everybody wash their hands when they should. And that measure is you should wash your hands every time you enter a patient care area, like their room, and every time you leave. Right? It sounds simple but you need 100% compliance. And, and so you need people to speak up and remind each other. And that speaking up is very countercultural. And so it requires a lot of management support, but beyond management support, it requires the support of the group we'll call opinion leaders. People who others look up to, not because of their role or their position, but because of their track record and who they are. So we want to involve those people, the formal leaders, but also the informal leaders, and make sure that they're modeling and supporting the right behavior. In this case, washing your hands and speaking up to remind people when you see that they haven't washed their hands. This is really fascinating. I think what I like about that uh, flag analogy is that uh, it's a reminder to be respectful, it's a reminder that you're both on the same team. Is it also maybe a reminder that there's a higher cause and that the, it's important for you to speak up because um, while that may not be valued, there is something really important that transcends both of you? Absolutely. There's a saying that you know, when people do wrong, <laughs> it, it, the charitable explanation is that they've got their eyes down in the trench in front of them. They're failing to look up at the stars. Right? It's not that they don't have values. It's not that they don't see the stars. It's that they're not looking at the stars right now. And if you can, in a helpful way, remind them of what the bigger purpose is, the purpose that unites us all around helping kids, um, that reframes the conversation in an important way. It makes it a moral conversation.
Well, some of the stories uh, that, that, that get told are just so sort of devastating in the consequences. The co-pilot who doesn't say we shouldn't lift off because of the ice on the plane, you know, or the, the, the nurse who doesn't say to the doctor, we have to do this, or the doctor doesn't listen to the mom of the patient. I mean, the consequences can be so severe. Yes, <laughs> they can. It's, it's, this is, but the challenge is, it's like anything, it's like workplace safety. Um, it, failing to speak up doesn't always lead to bad results, but when it does, they can be catastrophically bad results. So it's hard to, we need people to speak up. The challenge is, when we're facing one of these risky, maybe politically sensitive conversations, we tend to think to ourselves of all the bad things that could happen if we open our mouths. And we tend not to think of all the bad things that could happen if we don't open our mouths. We need people to think of both sides of the ledger so that, so that when you're weighing, should I speak up or not, you're thinking about what could happen if I don't speak up. So if we go back to our list of five things, we're looking at conversations that can help teachers shift from feeling um, stressed and fatigued to feeling more like they're actually uh, happy with what they're doing or being productive. So shall we go yes. to number three? Yeah, let's do that. It's teachers who feel like they're being let down by their peers. So, so here's an example, again, from our interviews. I'm currently sharing middle school band rehearsals with our fifth and sixth grade director. She's frequently late for rehearsals and not prepared for her rehearsal responsibilities. It's difficult to develop expectations and consistency for the students if the director doesn't demonstrate this herself. And I think many teachers, as, as teaching becomes more of a team enterprise, feel like they're being let down by their peers. Not that the peers are doing a poor job in the classroom, but they're doing a poor job as a team member. And People need to be able to speak up about that because otherwise everything lands on you and, and you're not able to deliver at the level you, you feel you need to and it can, it can undercut that engagement. So the, the focus of this, again, is on, on teacher burnout, which I would say is the opposite of teacher engagement. If you think of someone who's really engaged, they're passionate, they're excited, they're, their eye is on the ball all the time. The opposite of that is someone who's become cynical, kind of depressed, and feels helpless, and nobody's listening to them, and exhausted both emotionally and physically, and, and that's, that's what we want to avoid, <laughs> protect against. Right, and again, that, your, you know, your initial imagery of the fire and um, actually lying down in the face of the fire rather than running away. Uh, you know, it seems so relevant here, which is these can seem really, really scary, but ultimately the goal is to not feel so disempowered and to actually feel like you can re-engage. Exactly. Yes, that, that when you're facing one of these, you don't, don't run away from it, run toward it, because there's no way you can solve it. There's no way it's going to go away if it's not addressed. So Rosemary says, whistleblowers are always targeted. I have never seen it fail. Um, and we certainly saw this with the financial crisis recently in the 60 Minutes piece on two whistleblowers who obviously, uh, you know, got fired and, and, uh, and lost their jobs. Um, without, without, you know, at the appropriate moment, 
maybe you could kind of give us a sense of how often does that happen in this circumstance, and did the tools that you give for having these conversations help to mitigate that? Yeah, because my experience actually, I mean, the whistleblower data is obviously there, and it's true, it's valid, but I want to present an alternate perspective. When I first got started working with Albert Bandura, I was doing um, what you'd call kind of opinion leader research. So I was I would go into an organization or I go into a it could be a school, and so imagine I'm doing this at your school, and every teacher and employee at the school gets one question on a survey, and the question is, if you were facing a really tough problem, and you had time, who here at the school would you go to for the best, most trustworthy advice? And you can name up to three people. So think of the people you would name. And then if you look at who they name, what you find is that about half of the people working in that organization or that school are not named by anybody, or they're named by just one person. But there's a small group, and usually it's between 6 and 8% who are named by darn near everybody. So in a school of 100 teachers, it's not uncommon to have 50 of them name the people who are in the top 7 to 8% of the opinion leaders. We go to those people. And and when I was in graduate school, I would go to those people and I would follow them around and try to figure out what were they doing different that made them opinion leaders. And here's an example. Um, I'll I'll use an example not from a teacher because I I don't have one on the tip of my tongue, but one from a Fortune 500 company where I was following around a vice president. They were in a meeting with the CEO, and they were talking about whether the firm should move to Seattle or Chicago. And the data suggested Seattle was the better choice, but the, the CEO was pushing for Chicago. And all the VPs in the room were going along with the CEO, even though the data suggested something different. And then this guy spoke up and said, um, I don't know if this discussion is going the way you want. I know that you have a strong investment in wanting to move the firm to Chicago, and and I see that we're all kind of we're willing to go to Chicago with you, but did you want our input? Because we do have a lot of data that suggests Seattle would be the better choice. Do you want this to be an open discussion, or have you already made up your mind? And the CEO said, no, actually, I want this to be an open discussion. Can we discuss it further? And they ended up moving to Seattle. Now, they, that decision was made much later, but as we were leaving that meeting, a different VP pulled me aside and said, now, I know you're following Jack around, and you're trying to see what makes him so good. What he did there today, that's what makes him so good. He spoke up when all of us thought we needed to speak up, but he was the only one who had the guts to do it, and that's what makes him an opinion leader. Now, what we found in our research was that those people were far more likely to be promoted, not thrown out. So speaking up itself, if you do it right, <laughs> can make a huge difference. But the issue is doing it right. right. Speaking up in a way that makes you look obnoxious is not going to work at all. So one of the criticisms you frequently hear of uh, success literature is that it puts the burden on the employee uh, and rather than the organization. Um, and and I, I guess I would worry that, that teachers who are hearing this, would some of them would feel like, why does this have to be my responsibility? Do you get that response ever? Absolutely. Yes, and it's true. <laughs> it, it depends on the audience you're talking to. Um, you know, I, the the 
I guess the every consultant who works in any organization, any change agent, wants to start from the top, right? Because you, then you can get it modeled from the top down. You can get support from the top. But you know what? There's nobody on top. <laughs> Maybe the president would like to think he's the guy on top. But but if you're a principal, you've got a superintendent. I mean, you're you're always in the middle. Um, and so you have to sort of look at what's within your ability to control, knowing you can't necessarily control the people above you. You may have to cope with them, but you can at least should be able to have uh, influence with them. So I certainly don't want to sort of blame the victim or tell the victim to take on skills that are actually organizational suicide. I mean, that would be crazy. I certainly wouldn't want to do that. Um, I want to work from the top down and the bottom up. So working from the top down is helping the leaders of the organization understand why they can't be successful if they don't have open dialogue. They can't have innovation. They can't have engagement. They can't have anything more than just compliance and obedience unless people can speak up. So what can they do to encourage it? And then work from the bottom up saying, you can't enjoy your job and get fulfillment and have the impact you want to have unless you speak up. And so try to work from both ends. So when you were looking at these 400 teachers, you were looking specifically for teachers who, who were engaged and weren't experiencing burnout. And what, how did you get to the fact that they were holding these crucial conversations? What led you to that clue that, there, that it was about these conversations they were having? Um, in in one phase of the study, we did uh, we did a survey where we described these we described a whole variety of different conversations that were potentially crucial conversations, and we looked for four elements. We looked for frequency. How often does this do you face this kind of situation? So how often do you face it? That's frequency. Second is um, severity of the impact. So when this when you don't have the conversation. And this thing continues, this whatever this is, like an unsupportive school leader, where does it go? What's the rest of the story? How bad does it get? Third is um, when you're in this kind of situation, how easy is it to speak up and have frank, honest dialogue? Do you do that? And then finally, when you do that, are you able to solve the problem? So we look at those four dimensions. What we found was that these five particular crucial conversations were common, they were costly, and they were undiscussable. That, that's, that's sort of the definition of an accident waiting to happen. It's common. If you don't address it, it's really costly, in this case, costly to your morale and your burnout and your engagement. And in each of these conversations, actually all except the last one, fewer than half the teachers would have the conversation. Some it was as few as a quarter would have the conversation, and 75% would just let it go. Right. So, so I've uncovered one. number four. Right. But before I do so, Peggy says, we can know we should speak up, but who will teach us how to do it effectively? Well, let me encourage you to pick up our book's Crucial Conversations and Crucial Confrontations, and to visit our website, you can go to crucialconversations.com, where you can download videos, you can have descriptions. We of course, we're a training company. We have training, and we, of course, encourage you to, to join one of our seminars as well. But there are a lot of 
you can say there are a lot of ways to gather this learning. My father says this is the kind of skill you learn at your mother's knee or some other low joint. We want to be that low joint <laughs> so that you can come to our website, you can come to our training, you can read our books, you can read our articles, and, and figure out how to make this work. And for what it's worth, the Kindle versions of Crucial Conversations and Crucial Confrontations are available as a packet for the price of one, which is what I did. Cool. Okay, so number four, parents. Yeah, we've all run into that, right? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's challenges where the real problem is not in the room, and you have to reach out to this, to this parent somehow. Um, I, I have an example here, again, from our interviews. I recently had a student who found out that his biological father was not the person he knew as dad. It led to an ugly divorce. The student's mother was an emotional wreck, and she's told her son that neither his dad nor his biological father wants anything to do with him. It's no surprise that this student has zero self-esteem and is acting out in my class. It's like, how do you deal with an unhelpful parent or a parent who's struggling? And the issue is, can you, can you address this? And, of course, you can't solve every one of these problems either, but addressing it and asking for support and being very specific about what kind of support you can do um, can help a lot. The final one is the one where teachers are the masters. <laughs> it's a student who's having problems. In this case, we were highlighting behavioral problems, academic problems even more so. We found the overwhelming number of teachers had no shyness, no uh, resistance, <laughs> no reluctance to address these kinds of problems with students. And that, they, and that when they did address these problems with students, they demonstrated skills that if they use those same skills with unsupportive school leaders, <laughs> with other teachers, and with parents, a lot of, they would make some real progress. So I, I want to say I'm every, wondering. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, please. Well, I was saying that you asked earlier about positive deviance. And, you know, I like to ask people, do you consider yourself a deviant? <laughs> There's a whole field that studies what's called positive deviance. And a positive deviance is someone who, by every rights, ought to have a problem. But, but don't. And the example I like is when we were working with a Carter Center in Nigeria with guinea worm. Guinea worm is a parasitic infection. It's a three-foot-long parasitic worm that lives inside you. It's a horrible thing. There's no medical treatment for it. You get it from drinking polluted water. So there was a village. In fact, there were three villages getting water from the same polluted water source. And in two of the villages, more than half of the villagers had guinea worm. But in the third village, none of the villagers had guinea worm. And so that village, that makes them a positive deviant because they're getting water from the same place, but they're doing something that protects them. And so the Carter Center trained the villagers to follow each other around to try to figure out and discover for themselves what the positive deviant village was doing different. And all they were doing different was when the women and children got back from gathering water, the men were off tending the herds. When the, men, when the women and children got back with the water, before they poured the water into the community cistern, they draped their skirts over the cistern and poured the water through their skirts. They filtered it, and that's all it took. So the Carter Center went out and got 
far better filtration systems, and that's what they're now using. And Nigeria now is one of the countries that's wiped out guinea worm. They don't have it at all. So my point is that every one of us is a positive deviant sometimes with these conversations. If we think that we're a failure at confronting school leaders, think of the skills we have that make us a success confronting a failing student. And how could we use those skills where we're the positive and use it in areas where currently we're not? It would also seem that if you were a concerned teacher and you felt like this was hard for you, that you could get a group together and kind of voluntarily determine to go through the material and, and play an influential role in creating good, positive, crucial conversations. Yeah, absolutely. The concepts are very, very simple. Let me just share just real briefly some the concepts. The concepts are built around the notion that when we feel threatened, we go to fight or flight. So when you're going to an assistant principal who becomes belligerent, right, it's because that assistant principal is feeling threatened in the moment. Their goals are feeling threatened. Their respect is feeling threatened, right? They're being threatened around purpose or around respect. So how can you demonstrate mutual purpose and mutual respect so that they won't feel threatened and, won't, and, and will engage in dialogue? There are other times when you'll feel threatened and, and we ask you to examine why you feel threatened. Is it real or is it a story you're telling yourself that's maybe not valid? Right? So we teach the skills for how to, how to manage your own emotions and how to manage other people's strong emotions. Putting a note in the chat for, for um, Bruce because he says, was it necessary for the locals to figure out a solution, figure it out for the solution to take? That's kind of the brilliance of the rest of your material, which is the six sources of influence, because it's one thing to know what needs to be done, and it's another to figure out how to help people change their behavior, right? Yes, and, and I think the question is a very valid question. I mean, self-discovery is nice because you discover it in your own personal experience and you believe in it, whereas if some outsider comes in and gives you advice, um, they may or may not believe it. There was a study done in South America in the, in the Amazon jungle where, uh, where physicians came in and were trying to give advice to the people living in the jungle on how to avoid malaria. But the villagers weren't accepting any of the advice. And when one of the local villagers sort of came and talked, he shared the reason. Here's the reason. They thought the physicians, because of their dress, were probably just a different version of a missionary because they were dressed just like missionaries. And they didn't really – the missionaries told them all kinds of stuff was true that they didn't think was true, and so did the physicians. And they put the two together because they both wore white shirts and disrespected all of them. There are times when you're the one walking in with a white shirt. You don't have any credibility. <laughs> and if you can help people discover the solution for themselves, it's far more influential than if you try to tell it to them. So it occurs to me that it's just really hard to encapsulate all of the content of the books. But I am going to show this slide to give people and maybe give you a chance to kind of give a little bit of a sense of kind of how this fits into the bigger sure. picture of the work yeah. that we do. Yeah. So, so this is a pretty simple model. It looks at it starts with results in mind. It says what are the results you're trying to accomplish, and then it says, well, if you want new and better results, 
it's probably you better figure out what are the behaviors that drive those results. And the insight that we and other successful influencers have around behaviors is don't look at the 10 or 20 behaviors that influence the result. Look at the vital few. Look at the two or three that have a disproportionate impact. It's no different from the old 80-20 rule or the Pareto principle. If you think of the old 80-20 rule, that rule suggests that 80% of the results come from just 20% of the behaviors. So if you're dealing with a complex phenomenon that's influenced by 10 different behaviors, this suggests you should focus on the two that have the most impact. Because if you spread yourself too thin by looking at five or 10 behaviors, you're not going to be as successful. Now, once you've focused in on the two or three vital behaviors, this model suggests you should throw everything plus the kitchen sink at those behaviors. We call it the six sources of influence. And let me do sort of a two-minute description of the six sources of influence. When you're asking someone to take on a new behavior, a vital behavior, they're going to ask themselves two questions. Can I do it? And will it be worth it? So you see those at the top of the six sources of influence. That's the ability question, can I do it? And the motivation question, will it be worth it? That's the backbone of this model. The ribs of the model, which you see along the left, are personal, social, and structural. Those are the sources of our motivation Some or end ability. Some of our motivation and ability is personal. It's a personal passion. It's a moral imperative. It's a preference. That's personal motivation. Personal ability is our knowledge, our skill, our experience, our strength. Those are all personal attributes. And yet I like to think of the, the billionaire investor Warren Buffett who says, if you take a leader with an excellent reputation and place him in an industry with a less than excellent reputation, it's the industry that will maintain its reputation. <laughs> so having great personal motivation and great personal ability is not enough because we're social animals. We land in a social environment. So if you think of a school, in your social world, you've got teachers you respect and teachers you don't respect. You've got a boss, maybe several bosses. Those people are social motivators and social enablers. It's the power of peer pressure. It's the power of respected others. And then finally, at the structural level, you've got a structural motivation, like I think of the P's, your performance review, your pay, your promotions, your punishments, and your perks. It's the things the organization has in place that motivate or demotivate. And at the ability side, it's things like, well, what size is your classroom? How many students are in the classroom? Do you have desks for all of them? <laughs> do you have blackboards or do you have computers? What do you have? It's all the structural enablers. So what we have found is that with profound, persistent, and resistant problems, the kind of problems that are stubborn, the reason they're stubborn is that you've got obstacles in each of the six sources rather than enablers. And that if you want to influence a tough, stubborn challenge, you have to overwhelm that overwhelming problem by employing influence strategies in each one of those six sources. And our research shows, we published this in MIT's Sloan Management Journal, that if you combine four or more sources of influence together, all aimed at the few vital behaviors, your odds of being successful go up tenfold. So, so there is a... Yeah, go ahead. Well, there is sort of a natural tendency 
to the, choose one way of dealing with a problem, right? And kind of whatever our comfort level is or our strategy or our, you know, whatever megaphone we have. Sure. And when that doesn't work, we kind of throw up our hands. And essentially what I read in the material was you have to come at this from all sides. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some some organizations think that training is the solution to everything, right? If that's our personal ability, is the solution to everything. But it's not, right? You've got to look at motivation. And you may think that personal motivation and personal ability is everything, but it's not if your classroom doesn't have capability, if, you're, if your reward system isn't rewarding. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a new magic job. You are now the director of a TV show called Extreme School Makeover. Uh-huh. <laughs> How would you use your models to come in and help a school really improve what they're doing with teaching and learning? Yeah. Well, I I think the results I focus on would be results um, of student success. So that's I'll just I'll posit that in our model you have to put a pin somewhere, right? You could say my 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 in this article what I was looking for is success. The results was was eliminating teacher burnout. That's why I put the pin. But if I were working you know as broadly as you're describing, the pin I'd put in is I'd want to have a handful of measures that together in combination um, spell success for a student, right? So there. There'd be that handful of measures. And then I'd say, what are the behaviors that drive those results? And, and I'll, use a, I'll use a very simple example. I'm working with a university that's using one of our books, Change Anything, with all of its incoming freshmen, trying to improve survival rate for incoming freshmen. And the vital behaviors that determine success of a freshman in college is, there are three of them, it's attend classes, <laughs> it's complete assignments, and it's make friends. Now, that's as simple as it gets, right? We all know this. This is duh. But the challenge is then influence. How do you get students to do that? And that's the key. So uh, we're I would look, I try to find no. those behaviors. Go ahead. They're saying they would watch that show. <laughs> <laughs> So in trying to, so in, one of the lessons it seems to me from the material is that there really are typically a few, a very few behaviors which really can make dramatic change. And this is, I didn't read this as I was preparing for the interview, but in the training that I went to at your facility, uh, one of the, the ideas was to pull yourself out of the situation and look for where you see those positive deviant examples or where you see success that don't involve you so you can look at it a little more objectively. Is that the yes. principle? Yeah. And, and there, so, go ahead. Well, I was yeah, that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, there, there are many ways that a behavior could become a vital behavior. Um, the most common is it's one that we all know, but we don't practice. So example would be, how many of you on this call know more about living a healthy lifestyle than you practice? <laughs> I've got my hand up, right? It's self, and it's, things, it's exercise, it's watch what you eat, it's um, manage your stress, uh, stop smoking, um, and manage your blood pressure. Okay, that's, sort, that's been proven. I hope that's not a huge surprise to anybody. The challenge is we don't do it. Other times, the, the vital behavior is a little harder to find. And, but there are a couple ways to think about it. 
One way to think about it is to map a process to say from from the beginning when when a student begins the first part of the year through to the end of the year, are there crucial moments when things spin out of control and go bad for them? If you can discover what those crucial moments are, you can backtrack and say, how could I have prevented that moment from happening or help the person? What does the what's the behavior during the moment that would turn failure to success? So you can use crucial moments to find vital behaviors, or you can use positive deviance and say, what is it they're doing that leads them to success, and can I clone that? Or is it something that can't be cloned? This took me a while to wrap my head around. So for those of you who are trying to figure it out now, the six sources of influence, for me it was helpful to think about what are the ways in which I'm influenced. I'm influenced by my own motivation and by my own ability. I'm influenced by my peers and my social group, by things they do to motivate and things they do to help me succeed or not succeed. And then I'm motivated by kind of the larger structural things that maybe are sort of more sort of institutional. I can't remember what the word is you use there. But it was it, when you think about all of those different factors that influence me or you, then it's kind of like bringing the army instead of one soldier to make a change in the behavior and sort of thinking through in each of those categories. And I think there's even a worksheet, right? Yes, that, absolutely. That you can download that, that yep. lets you sort of brainstorm in each of those categories and say, okay, if we're going to bring more than just one soldier, we're going to bring the whole army to help make a change. What are the different categories that allow us to brainstorm what those changes would be? Right. So you'd find that at vitalsmarts.com. the link in the chat there. So we don't normally okay. get so close to you know, sort of paid commercial material like this. But yeah. I will say for those who are listening, this was really interesting for me because we've, you know, over the last few years we've been talking about change in schools and change in education. And I feel like this is a really big part of the story for me. Um, you know, as I as I as I read Influencer on a plane flight, you know, scribbling madly in the book, and I felt like this this is kind of a model that could be uh, very powerfully used to figure out how to uh, help educational cultures um, align with their ultimate goals and desires. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of at the end of our hour, and we, 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 as a courtesy to our guests, we do end on time. David, so I, want, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, if there, uh, if you, vitalsmarts.com is the uh, website for the company, and, the, and, and there are all the books. Um, is there anything you'd want to say in conclusion before we close? Well, I guess I just want to say that, like like I probably everyone on this call, I can cite teachers who've had remarkable turnaround impact on my lives. Um, I had a third grade teacher, I had a tenth grade teacher, I had a twelfth grade teacher, and I had several college professors who made just enormous differences in in my life, differences for the good. Um, and I just applaud the efforts of all of you on this call. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Really appreciate your being here. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, tomorrow night, the EduBlog Awards show, and on Thursday, the Blue Valley School Caps Program. Uh, have a great day or evening, depending on where you are, and thanks again for being a part of the future of education. Take care, everybody. Bye now.